Hi everyone, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to our podcast Books and Beyond with Bound season 4 where we speak to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. Yes, and we are editors, podcasters and storytellers and through Bound we help you create stories and put them out into the world. So Michelle, I have been waiting for this episode since forever because I'm a huge prehistory buff. I love to imagine what the world would have looked like, you know, before all of this technology. And today we're going to get a very inside view into this topic because we're going to be speaking to Tony Joseph. He is the author of Early Indians. So one of the reasons that I absolutely love this book and it's one of my favorites is because it sort of reminded me of an Indian version of Sapiens. and it covers the origin story of indians how indians came to be where did we come from why do we look the way we do why are we the way we are and he covers this through the story of these four mega prehistoric migrations and what these migrations then came together to create who we are Yeah gosh that I know how much you love this topic and I actually loved how Tony used genetics in the book and not just genetics he drew inferences from so many fields like history archaeology linguistics population gen- genetics and philo- philology I don't even know what half of these mean but we're going to find out <laughs> Yeah and I can't wait to find out you know how he managed to unpack so much research and he actually carved such an entertaining narrative right Uh, but before that, we have an announcement to make. Tara is our in-house non-fiction expert. She has a very few mentorship slots left this year. So if you want to write a genre-bending book like Tony's, we would love to hear from you. Tara will be waiting. Yeah. So if you have a great idea and you're eager to start working on it, you can always reach out to me. But for now, let's go back in time and let's visit our prehistory, prehistoric Indians with Tony Joseph. Welcome Tony. Thank you very much Tara. Welcome Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so we're really really excited to find out more about your book and your writing process in this podcast. I love prehistory so anytime something like this comes up I'm always the first one to buy a book. So when your book came out a few years ago I completely jumped on it uh, and it was so full of interesting insights that I'm dying to ask you about. But before we get into all of that we just wanted to do a small little fun icebreaker uh so tony if you had to pick any era to go back to what would it be uh it will probably be around the uh 4th 5th century bce in india okay cool can you tell our listeners what was happening there <laughs> uh i think it's a time when you have uh there's a lot of ferment happening in eastern india what you could call the magadha or uh, you know this is the region from where the maurya empire will, uh, will will arise this is the region where a lot of the second urbanization that is after the indus the harappan civilization went down it took a long time for cities to come up again so this is around the period when that is happening beginning to happen in this area and but more even more importantly new movements new philosophical movements uh, or religious movements like jainism and buddhism are coming up so it's a period of uh, great ferment and excitement 
That is so fascinating. And um, yeah, I would, I'm dying to hear more about it. But Michelle, what is your, yes. what is your era of choice? Oh, I haven't um, thought about it. But if I had to pick one, I would say the 19th century, um, especially because of the women writers. And I think that completely changed the way we look at fiction. And, you know, a lot of us borrow uh, from that time. So I wish um, I had been born then. Yeah. But what about you, Tara? So mine is basically, I think I would go back to the cave. <laughs> maybe that, maybe the Bimbetka caves that you speak about, Tony, I remember going for a school trip um, and visiting those caves and it was very fascinating and I've always been interested in cave life. Uh, but anyway, let's, let's not digress further from the questions <laughs> that we have for yeah. you. <laughs> Coming back to your book, Tony, um, you know, which is called Early Indians, and it's out now with its updated version. You know, it talks to us about our ancestors who came to India through four migrations, um, Africa, West Asia, East Asia, and Central Asia, and, you know, how they made it their own land over the last 65,000 years. And, you know, we know that the starting point for you was when you wanted to know more about the Harappan civilization, right? That's, that's right. when that's when you wanted to, you know, probe further and know further about, you know, what happened before the Harappan civilization, right? But what we were curious about, you know, why was it really important for you to find out where it all began? And, and how relevant is, you know, this question as to who are we today? I was always fascinated by the Harappan civilization for some odd reason that I can't uh, I can't explain. Even when I was reading about it in, in in school, and it always bothered me that you could never find clear answers to a few critical questions, like who were these people and where did they go, uh, and why did it take so long for cities to rise up in India again after they went, were they our ancestors or not? So there were many questions which you could not find answers to quite apart because we, we had not, you know, deciphered the script. And uh, so this was a, a fascinating subject for me. And uh, when I started working on it some uh, almost nearly 10 years ago, uh, it was with the intention of finding out since so many years in, in all the preceding decades, uh, looking at all the advancements that had that had happened in various disciplines, how far we can come to answer these questions. Then one thing led to another, and you realize that you can't really answer questions about the Harappan civilization unless you figured out where they came from, and which is because we know that the Harappan civilization is a natural uh, development out of the agricultural revolution that took place in northwestern India. So therefore, you had to figure out who were the people who led the agricultural revolution in northwestern India. The, the scope of the project kept expanding until it became who were the Indians, where did they come from? And it uh, and that started, that the story then started nearly, you had to go back 70,000, 65,000 years ago. And why is this question so important for us to know today? There's a, you know, there's a British historian, E.B. Hobsbawm, uh, who put this very well. He said, historians are to nationalism uh, what poppy growers are to heroin addicts. We provide the raw material that the market wants in the sense that all nations need their histories. And uh, there are particular uh, periods in time when history becomes very contentious. 
uh, and I think uh, many nations go through this period. And I think for us in India today, uh, we are in a period where our history is very contentious. That's because there are contenting versions of our nationalism. So it is extremely important at this point of time to make sure that our understanding of history is based on facts, not imagination, to, that we use all aspects of science to understand more about, to get clarity on where we came from. While working on this book, I think there are so many new things that one discovered that one did not know earlier. For example, we now know, no matter where in the, uh, uh, in the caste hierarchy one falls, no matter what religion uh, one is from, no matter which region of India one inhabits, all population groups in India share uh, the ancestry of the first Indians who came here 65,000 years ago. Uh, so, so there are, so there are the, the things that we find about a prehistory has implications for the way we look at each other in the subcontinent. When I talk about India, the title of my book, Early Indians, refers to India in the old sense of the term, as, as in South Asia, rather than uh, the Republic of India as it stands today. Right. And, uh, you know, adding to that, Tony, um, you know, like you said, we are, we are having uh, a different view on what uh, nationalism means, right, in recent years. And, and I can totally relate because being a Catholic, uh, you know, I've also been told that, uh, you know, you people came to India and you all have corrupted our culture and, and, and that, you know, all, all of this lifestyle uh, changes that are, that are seen as modern or that are seen as Western are often attributed to Catholics or Christians. And I've, I've been doing a little bit of research of, you know, because I'm a Mangalorean. And uh, of course, you know, we, it goes back to the Goans and the Portuguese and all of that. And I've been quite interested in looking at uh, that journey. But your book completely changed that for me because I often felt um, like an outsider. But your book made me feel like, oh, so we all are part of it. And we all are actually part of of a pizza, which which I it completely blew my mind because you use the analogy of a pizza to help us understand that we all are alike. Um, you know, so you go to say that the base or the crust of the pizza uh, could be compared to the first Indians who migrated out of Africa, and then the sauce above it could be the Harappans who you know then spread around, and then the cheese on top of that are the Aryans who came recently, right? And then the toppings are the people who came into the subcontinent quite later, which is quite a fascinating way of looking at the way people you know came to India and then eventually became Indians that we know of today, right? And I've never seen any historian makes such a complex concept into such a, a popular or accessible thing. So how did this actually come to you, this analogy, and, and why did you simplify it in this way? Uh, this analogy came to me actually quite accidentally. Someone who knew that I was working on this book um, wanted to know what I had found out about the composition or the formation of population in his part of, uh, of India. So I had to find a way that I could. It was while explaining to it to him. So it was a uh, it was it was imagery that came up quite accidentally and uh, without too much thinking about it. And I really did not think that I could, I uh, you know, use it in the book. I thought I would come up with something far better. But really, once you started thinking about alternative ways of describing it, you realize more and more that there is nothing. There is no other imagery that you could use with as much effect. So that's how it uh, stuck. The, to take on from what you said, 
the way that the Indian population formed, that we are a mixture of multiple migrations that happened in prehistory, that is true of all other uh, populations in the world as well. And this is something that we have got insight into uh, in the last 10 years in a far more uh, comprehensive manner that we ever had. And that's because of the relatively new field called population genetics, which has now acquired the ability to use ancient DNA collected from skeletons that from people who lived thousands or even tens of thousands of years ago. So because they're able to extract DNA and then use that, uh, analyze it to see which population groups are related to which other population groups, and also to see which population groups moved where and when. This has brought much uh, greater clarity to how various population groups in the world formed, not just South Asia. So we now, in just the last 10 years, have got far greater uh, a granular understanding of different population groups formed. And, uh, and that's the standing part. All populations are mixtures, all population groups, almost without exception. If there is any population group that's not a mixture, it must be uh, some island which has been cut off from the rest of the world and uh, therefore has not seen uh, any other population group for, for thousands of years. And I do not think there is such uh, an island, except perhaps maybe, you know, in the Andaman and Kobar Islands, there is, uh, so there might be one or two population groups in the world, but everyone else is a mixture. And I love, one of the reasons that I really like prehistory is because it's a history that is so heavily reliant on biology uh, to construct a narrative. And you've also said that the book wouldn't be possible without these advancements uh, that happened 10 years ago. Uh, you've also released, you know, we're speaking now because you've released an updated version of the book. So I imagine that um, the research keeps changing around. So what has changed for you, um, you know, from the last time that you published the book to this updated version? Um, has the evidence changed in any way? And how do you foresee the book's um, sort of stance maybe in 10 to 15 years when maybe more pieces of evidence come into play? What we have seen happen is, is that we are not seeing the picture change. What we are seeing is the picture get sharper with far greater granular details. Uh, for example, uh, you know, I mean, just to take one example, we knew that the migration from Central Asia uh, happened sometime between 2000 BCE and 1000 BCE. That is how things stood maybe four, four years or five years ago. Now what we have know is that actually no, the period of the migration, that migration happened over a much shorter period between 2000 BCE and 1500 BCE. How do we know this? We know this because based on the latest uh, ancient DNA findings, we know that the population complexion of Central Asian regions from where the migration happened to South Asia, the complexion of those populations changed because of significant migration from East Asia after 1500 BCE. So if there were migration from these source populations in Central Asia after 1500 BCE, we should be able to see that changed complexion, the more the higher East Asian component in India too, which we do not see. So therefore, we know that the migration window had to be much uh, shorter between 2000 BCE and 1500 BCE. So this is the way that as we find more evidence, what we get is a far clearer picture. Even today, we do not have a very clear idea 
of uh, how the migrations within India uh, would have happened, say, within the period of uh, 2000 BCE and uh, and the beginning of the Common Era 2000 years ago. So I'm sure that as uh, our uh, as we as we gather more uh, evidence and more ancient DNA finds happen from the Indian subcontinent, we will get clarity on that too. So so that's that's what I expect as as more evidence comes in, not just from uh, ancient DNA or, or or genetics, but from other areas too, including archaeology, linguistics. I think we are getting new pieces of evidence from all connected fields and uh, and what happens then is far greater and a, a better picture and a granular understanding of what happened yeah totally i think um, you know it, it's like uh, i could just think of an analogy of a glass being all fogged up and then slowly clearing out right i think that's what um, new uh, studies or i think that's what new advancements uh, do and and I think one needs to be really liberal or open minded to get that and I really liked how you said that it's not just uh, you know one or two streams uh, that you have combined right it's a lot including linguistics philology archaeology all of that and I was really curious as to out of all of these right like we all have uh, you know our favorite dishes or favorite ingredients in anything so out of all these fields which is the most um, challenging and which is the most appealing to you? And I want to know why. Uh, the most challenging without question was uh, was genetics because it's a pretty technical, the way that the papers are written, the extensive, intensive use of statistics uh, and also the fact that it's a, compared, compared to the other disciplines, this is a more, it's a younger field, which means that it has been making very sharp progress in the last uh, seven years or eight years in the techniques that it uses. So the method, the methodology and the method it uses has improved by leaps and bounds over the last seven years. What that means also is that uh, the older research becomes very quickly outdated because the newer research is based on far greater uh, visibility into the genomes. So getting on top of this and getting the ability to be able to compare and to make sense of uh, research happening over a fairly longish period of time, in the middle of the science itself, making dramatic leaps, uh, that was a huge challenge in the beginning because sometimes you will see research contradicting itself. But as, what shall I say, greater visibility uh, and the quantity of ancient DNA findings from around the world uh, went up very dramatically in a matter of years, I think that uh, gave you the both the grounding and the understanding uh, to see what is happening. So the when you try to see world population how populations formed across the world uh, using ancient DNA, it's like uh, it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle being filled. Uh, since population movements don't respect national boundaries, and it happens across uh, continents across over over long periods of time. What you're doing is exactly filling in the genetic jigsaw puzzle and the pieces have to fit. And even where one or two pieces are missing, actually, you can figure out what happened because when the rest of the pieces are fitting in. So that's what that's how it happens. So without question, genetics was the most uh, difficult part of it to uh, to understand. Was it also was it also the most exciting for you? Yes, absolutely. Because uh, until the ancient DNA 
results started coming in in a torrent over the last few years. Uh, many issues, many uh, controversial issues around the world had got into a stalemate where uh, different people were saying different things, but there was no way to settle the issue. And that issue has been settled. For example, in, not just in India, in Europe, for example, it was a matter of uh, debate and discussion whether there was indeed migrations. It was, it was indeed migrations that uh, spread what's called the corded way culture in Europe. Uh, this is connected to the Nazis, for example, used to say, the, the Hitler, you know, in the 1930s in Germany, they used, to, they used to identify themselves with the Aryans and they used to say that the, the Corded Way culture was a result of Aryan invasions. Uh, but uh, after the World War and the, both the archaeologists, they got, you know, they, as a result of the distaste with which the Nazis and their ideology was concerned, uh, was looked at. The idea that there were migrations that changed the, uh, that brought Corded Way culture to Europe was uh, looked down upon. But now we know, based on new discoveries that has happened, that migrations did happen very significantly. And that's a major part of the reason for the expansion of the Corded Way culture. But we also know that uh, from the new research that Hitler's idea of Aryans was completely and absolutely wrong. Uh, the idea or the what he called the idea, the, the, the migrants came from Eastern Europe, a, a region that he had contempt for. And he thought the idea or the, or the migrants were from, from the Nordic region. And we know that's not true. So uh, new discoveries have significantly changed uh, our understanding of the past and has helped solve uh, debates that had gone on for long. It's so fascinating, you know, because as humans and it's, you know, especially in the pandemic, you think we really are explorers and we have been um, and nothing can keep us from uh, from doing that in the past and the present. And what I love about prehistory is that it combines all of these different fears together to create this vivid picture of a life that, you know, is so far removed from the way that we are we are living right now. Uh, so, you know, Tony, actually, I teach this nonfiction class and I use one of your paragraphs to look at how, you know, you can use um, creative storytelling techniques to really bring a world alive. Because what you do, apart from, you know, this copious amount of research and collaboration, combining all these fields is you employ so many storytelling techniques to bring the world of these prehistoric Indians alive. Uh, you know, talk about the Bhimbetka caves. I love that paragraph where you describe, you know, how the Indians, they must have partied there. They must have hunted there, you know. So you build worlds using this data. Uh, so I want to ask you, you know, how much creative license does a prehistory writer have when constructing worlds? Say, if we take the example of the Harappans, and how do you go about painting this picture in such a nice way? What's out the top of my head when, when you are starting on any of these projects? Uh, questions. Questions that I have a deep desire to answer. It's rarely that I start on a project with the idea to tell a story. The story comes along once you have got the question answered. It's the quest for answering the question that drives all of the research. And once you have begun to put the answers together, then the excitement about the discovery of the answer that uh, that 
provides the structure of the book and drives the writing of the book. I'm looking for interesting questions to answer. And uh, so in prehistory, the, uh, the, one of the major constraints was that there is no text, right? Because uh, this is before writing, there was any writing. So the only evidence that you have are what people have left behind and what you find in archaeological digs or in recent, more in, in more recent times by what DNA tells you. So there are no people, there are no names, there are no names of either people or even places because there's no writing that in the period that you're looking at. The only thing, so if, 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 if you're looking to tell stories of people, there is very, few, very little, you know, that, that, that is there. To some extent, you could have used the stories of, uh, of the researchers, the scientists, the discoverers to tell the story. Uh, but uh, in early Indians, at least, that's not the track it took. So you will not see many characters in the early Indians, but you can get a sense of the reading a detective story because you're trying to find answers to uh, fascinating questions about where we came from. So, uh, so that's the way that I see my writing, which I do not know whether it will work all the time, but so far it has worked for me. Yeah, uh, definitely. No, I think these questions are something that keeps plaguing us, right? And and you've put it all together and, and not just questions, but also myths, right? Uh, you've tried to demystify a lot of theories about who we are, right? You know, we think that Aryans, uh, you know, probably were here forever, but then you, you've said they've only come around around 4,000 years ago and, you know, that the caste system developed quite recently, which is, I mean, 2000 years ago, after a lot of intermixing had already happened. So what are some of the common myths that we as Indians have and that you have actually debunked in the book? A lot of Indians look at, for example, the tribals, what are called the tribals, and think that they are very different from the rest of the population. What evidence shows is that the rest of the Indian population has no closer relatives than the tribals of India anywhere in the world. Why is that? Because uh, the tribals and the rest of the population, they share the, the largest piece of the ancestry comes from the first Indians, which is shared by all of us. And when you say Indians, you're talking about all of South Asia. This applies to not just the Republic of India, it applies to the, to the uh, to other countries in the in the South Asian region as well. So this is the most striking uh, uh, discovery for me that no matter where in the caste, as I said, no matter where in the caste hierarchy stand, what religion you are, what language you speak, which region of India you come from, we all share a significant part of the ancestry of the first Indians. And this is unique because you will not find this particular first Indian ancestry uh, outside of South Asia. The other is that, uh, as you said, that the caste system uh, in its fullness, in as a full-fledged system that affected almost every part, every uh, all population groups in this subcontinent, that began uh, only around uh, 100 CE or so. That's nearly 2,000 years ago. That's because we can see from the uh, from the genetic record that until then uh, there was significant mixing between different population groups, and then we see that from around 100 CE or thereabouts practice of endogamic ikhtin, which is the practice of people marrying within their own communities. So the way that I see it is that there might have been the idea of endogamy that was practiced by a very small population uh, even before 100 CE. This is not an understanding that we had earlier. Uh, so I think there is, these are two of the critical uh, new understandings we now have, which we did not have earlier. 
Yes, I I really loved you know the way that you explained it in the book, and I you know I didn't I don't think any of us knew that we are so similar, and that these first Indians, which are not available anywhere as a genetic material, we are all made up of them. It's so fascinating. <laughs> I always thought you know yeah. there'll be more genetic difference, and I also didn't know that the Harappan mm. civilization was the precursor to the Dravidian language, uh, which is very very interesting to me. Uh, and so many other facts, like the, how the Lota even came from the Harappan <laughs> civilization, yeah. and then it sort of like got co-opted by the other migrants who then spread it uh, around. So, like this, I loved all the facts. What about you, Michelle? What did you? Find yeah, for was- for me, actually, many. You know, I've I've taken so many quotes, and and I could literally frame them. But one thing that hasn't left my mind is is you know how the genetic difference came about due to the caste system, and how uh, a single Indian village is two to three times i mean the difference between them is two to three times more than north europe and south europe and oh my god that just completely blew my mind and i think there are so many facts like that that i've learned that i have never come across before because we know right like i mean historians have their own way of of you know censoring things or i'll say um um tailoring things to their needs yeah yeah it's it's quite a yeah go ahead it's quite a provocative book in that way um and I also found it interesting that in the book you have said that, uh, and this is a direct quote, you said, my experiences yeah. during the writing of this book have taught me that even in the most professional of settings, personal preferences can play a part in how research findings are interpreted. And since we are so sort of, you know, we so uh, hold on to what is Indian culture and, and, and all of these, you know, preconceived notions, could you tell us more about what you meant by this and maybe an incident of when you had to face this? Um, see, I had to stop work on my uh, book uh, f- for a while because some of the people who are involved in, a, in, 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 in the research that I was uh, looking at uh, said things that were completely in conflict with the research that they had signed on to. And uh, so what it means is that, you know, what one can read in the paper, in the scientific paper that was published, does not gel with what is being said outside of it uh, by some of the authors of the paper itself. So at this point of time, one couldn't make out why is it happening. So I thought I may not be understanding something that is going on. So I had to uh, rededicate to learning more about the the discipline itself before I would uh, proceed further. Um, so then you realize that uh, the that this was actually a misinterpretation of the of the research itself, and that's happening even now. For example, uh, there is a recent research that happened which uh, said that uh, that the Iraqi Gadi, which is a Harappan city, that DNA recovered from from the Iraqi Gadi skeleton uh, the skeleton of a woman who lived in in Rakigadi about around 2600 BCE that is nearly 4600 years ago that uh, that she had no step ancestry right the research clearly says in the paper that she has no step ancestry what does that mean the research also says that step ancestry is prominent in india today there is significant step ancestry in india today but the but the, the research paper said the Raki Gadi woman, the Harappan of the woman of the uh, Harappan city of Raki Gadi, did not have the step ancestry. 
conclusion you can draw from this, as the paper itself says, is that uh, the migrations that brought steppe ancestry into India happened after the Harappan civilization. So the Arya migration had not happened during the period of the Harappan civilization. That is the only conclusion that can be drawn from this. But if you look at, and that's the conclusion that international media carried. But if you look at the way that the report was carried in many uh, Indian uh, newspapers and other media channels, you will see that this was interpreted to mean that uh, there is no, uh, uh, there was no step ancestry in the Rakhigadi DNA, and that means there was no area migration. It's a complete and direct contradiction of what the report says. If they had actually read the scientific report, they would not have arrived at uh, the conclusion. So, uh, so that's what I meant by that statement. And uh, what it means is that uh, uh, people in the media, especially, have to read the actual papers before they put pen to paper or, uh, or, or before they start reporting on it. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting because it reminded me of something I read recently. So uh, there was a TED talk that um, I'd seen. I don't remember the name of the researcher now, but uh, apparently he talks about ethics and how it's important to be ethical. And, and, and his research had come out many years back, right? And, and recently... Uh, people who were revisiting the research found out that it was a botched research and that uh, apparently it was based on based on samples which were not um, you know ethical which were made up and and that you know completely um, you know shook my i would say belief in, in the research because uh, as you mentioned it also it depends on misinterpretation also depends on contradictions and and it's just scary how how a few people can decide um, you know i would say the most important things uh, uh, you know that matter to us uh, but I must clarify that, in, I, as I said, wrote in the book, it's not the research that was at fault. It was the uh, research was absolutely perfect. Anyone who read the actual research report would not have been misled. But anyone who anyone who went by without reading the uh, research report by what appeared in the newspapers, what appeared in the media, would have been misled. Yeah, it's it's crazy how how things get misinterpreted, especially in India, you know, and uh, there's so much miscommunication of Indian culture. And, you know, you hear this very often, um, you know, lots of people from older people also, you know, say that, you know, this was in the Vedas and lots of like general statements like that, which are floating around. Um, And in the book, you said, this is again, a quote, Uh, there were so many quotable moments in the book, but you said that, there is no question in Indian prehistory that is more that has caused more heat and dust than this one. When and how did Indo-European language speakers who called themselves Arya reach the Indian subcontinent? Because you've said that this this question is so controversial because we as Indians think that our Indian culture is synonymous with Arya, which means you know maybe the Sanskrit, the Vedas, all of that. And it made me think of, you know, all these people in my life, like including, you know, my yoga teacher who says that, you know, this so-and-so is ancient Indian. It's always existed, you know, in our culture. I want to ask you, what is our Indian culture according to you? Uh, that will I'd wait for my next book. <laughs> this, the, the, the early Indians, the, this book looked at uh, how our population formed. And the book that I'm working on now would look at how our culture formed. And it would look at the period after uh, the four migrations happened, which is, uh, you know, the four major migrations had 
happened by around 1500 BCE. So what happened after that and how uh, that led us to having um, the culture that we have today is what I'm working on now. You see, the, the idea of India is itself that something that keeps changing over time. In my book also, as it says, Patanjali, uh, around 150 CE, asked the question, which is the land of the idea? And he himself answers, it is below the Himalayas, above the Vindhya mountains, and uh, towards the uh, uh, west, it is where the Saraswati disappears. Uh, towards the east, the, the boundary is the Kalaka forest, which is, the, which is regarded as the confluence between the Ganga and the Yamuna. So around 150 CE, the idea of India or Aryavarta, the land of the idea, is that. It's northern India, above the Vindhyas, below the Himalayas, uh, between where the Saraswati disappears and the confluence of the Ganga and the Yamuna. 200 or 300 years later, the same question is asked by uh, in Manu Smriti or Manava Dharma Shastra, and, uh, which is the land of the area. But by now, the definition has changed. It's, of course, still below the Himalayas and above the Vindhyas. Uh, but in the east, it goes all the way up to the sea. So the, expand, the idea of Arivartha has, has significantly expanded. And of course, much later, it still expands much later. So the idea of what India is or what part of India is India uh, is something that develops over time. And th that, so the idea that uh, anything is from time immemorial uh, is eternal uh, is an historical attitude. I think things develop, change over time. It always happens. And it's absolutely fascinating to try and see how things develop and how did things, things get to be the way they are. But uh, the point I'm making is that, yeah, none of these things that we take for granted as it being eternal is, is eternal. It, they, they all begin at some point of time and then develop. And that applies. To come back to the, the, to the question that you asked originally, we do think of our culture as idea, uh, Sanskrit, Vedic. And that indeed is a very important part of our cultural mix. But uh, there is a part that is even beyond that, the Harappan civilization that precedes the idea migration. The first is the largest civilization of its time, as big as the uh, Egyptian and Mesopotamian civilizations put together. In its mature form alone, it's, it, 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 you know, it uh, stood there for 700 years. And when that civilization declined, they spread all over the uh, all over the subcontinent, uh, taking their culture, their language, their practices, their belief systems along with them. So that itself shows that uh, there was a, uh, the Harappan culture is very much also part of our culture. So to look at our cultural formation as unisource coming from a singular source is mistaken. It is not. It comes from a history of multiple migrations that happened in prehistory and all of which are equally part of our culture. Uh, we have to understand it as multi-source that draws its inspiration from multiple migrations that happened over long periods of time. Yeah, firstly, we can't wait for your next book, uh, Tony. It, it sounds really interesting. Uh, I've, I've always been quite, you know, fascinated by how our culture um, draws from other cultures, right? And even the languages, all of that. And it took me... Um, uh, back, I mean, in memory lane, uh, because, you know, when I was uh, reading more about uh, Mangdorians, you know, like apparently we fled 
uh, Goa when the Portuguese took over. And and I've always been curious, uh, you know, when I've observed Mangalorean weddings uh, growing up, I've always been curious as to, you know, being uh, Catholics, why do we still use the Mangal Sutra, right, in, in, in the receptions? And when I read about it, um, apparently we wanted to preserve a little bit of, of, of the Hindu culture, like... Um, when we were converted and and I find this very interesting because of course I don't know um, how true it is or how false but I like how it is not rigid and as you said tradition as we know it keeps evolving keeps changing and I think that is the most fascinating thing yeah absolutely I think uh, uh, the borrowals are they're absolutely natural and they're absolutely normal part of all cultural interactions I think the idea that the idea that uh, there is some extra value uh, for a culture to be pure and uncontaminated is is false. Uh, all cultures uh, mix, match, borrow, adapt, adopt. Uh, this is also what has happened. For example, I would like to take the example of what happened after the Arya migrations. For example, which was the last major migration that shaped Indian demography when they came in. As we discussed, the people who were, uh, you know, the Harappans would already have moved to uh, east towards northern India and south towards southern India. And what would have happened over the next uh, few centuries is a major mixing between the culture that uh, that the idea uh, brought in and the existing culture of the people. And you can see that happening, for example, in the in the language, that the language that the idea brought would have been a previous version, an earlier version of what would come to be known as Sanskrit. And uh, in this earliest version of Sanskrit we have, we already have, we can see the imprint of the uh, uh, of the Indian languages. The pre-idea languages of India had what you call retroflex consonants. These are, uh, you know, sounds like ta, da, na, which are, which you can see in the earliest version of Sanskrit, but you cannot see them in other Indo-European languages. So you can see uh, the mixture happening at, at the language level, at the cultural level, and you can see many of the cultural practices of Harappa continuing uh, in later periods. This is the way it happens everywhere too. So the idea that people put huge value in not mixing or in keeping something pure uh, is both unrealistic uh, and uh, unnecessary. It's crazy, you know, like uh, how much mixing. And we see it even uh, in today. You know, I remember studying uh, in economics, uh, globalization and how these large corporations come into India and sort of try and adapt to the Indian culture in a way, uh, which is also <laughs> very interesting. Uh, speaking about economics, you know, I found it very fascinating that you've not you've not formally studied, you know, um, either archaeology, linguistics, or biology, uh, which has gone into the research of this book, and instead you have been immersed in business and economics before this. If it has, how has the discipline of business and economics helped you to write and research this book? Uh, I would not say it is the discipline of economics that has helped me the discipline of journalism has helped me i would say that is to go after information in a structured manner to answer questions uh, and i think that has helped me very significantly in the in the sense that that i, do, I usually as a journalist 
your fidelity is to the question that you're trying to answer. It is not to uh, a particular discipline. You don't really care where the answer comes from, whether it comes from archaeology, whether it comes from linguistics. Fidelity is not to, is to the questions that you're trying to answer. And that is very different from the way that uh, things usually work. I think this freedom uh, or this lack of constraint, I think, helped me uh, significantly in putting this thing together, putting this uh, book together, uh, because I could freely move between the disciplines. Uh, and of course, it, it also took a lot of time. It took me six years to put this, uh, to write this book. Uh, most of that time obviously was spent on research. When you, Usually when people say it took me six years, 10 years, what they mean is that on top of everything else I was doing, you know, it took me six years to write this book. But when I say it took me six years to write this book, this was not on top of something else that I was doing. This was the only thing I was doing. So that's a lot of time uh, it took to get on top of many of these disciplines. And even that I could do within that time only because I could, I did have access to the scientists uh, and the academics who were writing the, the uh, writing the papers, and they, a lot of them spend a lot of time with me uh, to discuss their research, as I have written in the acknowledgments. I also traveled a lot to a lot of places uh, to get a better sense of the of the regions or the places that one was writing about. Uh, so yeah, journalism I would say gave me the discipline and the basic tools necessary to start on this project. And uh, I must say that uh, halfway into it, I was not, I was not, uh, I mean, halfway when you look back, but uh, even after two years or three years of working on it, I was not sure that there would be a, uh, there would be a, a product at the end of it, that this would be successful because what you're trying to do was to talk about 6,000, nearly 65,000 years of history crunched into into something that can be followed. So Tony, how do you deal with that uncertainty? I find that really interesting because, you know, as a, a writer, I totally know that, you know, when you decide to write something, it takes away from your time from doing something else, right? You would rather do something else. So I, I find that uncertainty very, um, very interesting. So like, uh, for example, as you said, if you didn't see a book coming about or if you didn't see a final product, how would you have dealt with that? I, I don't know how to answer that because this is something that you live with. There's a chance that what you're working on may not uh, uh, succeed. For I mean, I can live go from the example of uh, of early Indians. If you look at the book, there are four main chapters, right? And those four main chapters are the first Indians, the hunter gatherers. And you're talking going about the farmers and the urbanites. Each of these are such huge chunks of time that you are focusing on and uh, you will see that when you get into each of those chapters each of the starting each of those chapters was like starting a book because you are dealing with completely different uh, uh, people who are focusing on that area the people who, whose work and your and the research papers that you are dealing with in chapter 1 are not the people and the research papers who we what that you are dealing with in the second chapter or in the third chapter, because usually people focus on one area and go in depth and you're trying to straddle such huge periods of time. And um, it's only when you had I probably uh, covered more than half the way, then you had some clarity that, yes, this is how it is going to be. If it had not come to that and if you had to leave it half the way, well, that's what keeps up the 
the the pressure on you to try harder i guess but uh, it worked with the early indians and i think it probably will work with this one too what i'm working on yeah now. i can't wait for the next one because that was my <laughs> biggest question you know and i was really like what what and then like now i've been thinking because i obviously you know refreshed my memory and read the book again before this interview and i was like oh you know like every single conversation i'm just looking at it through a different uh, lens but i want to move us to our uh, last section which is our reading section um a lot of our listeners or lava authors to give book recommendations um so i want to ask you you know since i'm such a big prehistory buff when i see a book like yours which takes so much effort and research come out they're very far and few between so i jump on it so what are your um what are your recommendations for people who are interested in prehistory things that i'm going to say might be a little tough reading but they will be um they be enormously rewarding if you have to look look at the language of the gods in the world of men by sheldon pollock it's an amazing uh, majestic piece of work on how uh, sanskrit spread its influence across all of the subcontinent and all the way into southeast asia across a very large part of the world that that would be one i don't know how many people have read the upanishads i think the upanishads the, the translation by uh, patrick oliver is uh, is a pleasure to read there are quite a few books that i had uh, in in my bibliography that i have talked about which are uh, one of them which is about the the horse the wheel and the language how bronze age riders from the Eurasia, eurasian steppe shaped the modern world by anthony uh, Dave, david anthony it's a fascinating book so i think those are a few of them uh, greater magatha by john bronkhorst is a, is an absolutely fascinating book that took that talks about the the culture of greater magatha uh, that is quite different from that uh, in aryabhatta and how that shaped a lot of indian prehistory No thanks for these I'll definitely look them up and reminds me in college you know uh, we were given this book guns germs and steel so that would be one of my recommendations uh, to add to this roster uh, another one that I'm reading which is very interesting right now uh, is called the history of work and it's written by this anthropologist and the book starts off you know he talks about in the beginning how other species also define work and he goes so far as to you know use the evolution of life to sort of define work so that was a very interesting yeah. one james salzman okay. he's an anthropologist okay. uh, so it's it's a very good read <laughs> what about you yeah no. no i mean i don't read um, that much non fiction i'm a huge uh, fiction buff which actually i wanted to know more from tony about so tony what do you think about historical fiction because i was I, you know i found it really interesting that you know uh, fiction writers take very important historical events or use very important things from history and then carve out scenes carve out characters dialogues all of that right so what do you think of the genre and and do you have any favorites uh no i don't think historical fiction has uh, has attracted me much history does of course but uh, so what kind of books do attract you what do you read for fun uh i i must say that in the last 7 8 years i haven't read anything other than because the amount of stuff that i have to read on the, on things that i'm working on is so huge but otherwise i like uh, 
when you re- when you read uh, fiction i like milan kundera so it is fiction that i read mostly yeah i mean we can't imagine you know the kind of reading that had to go into your book uh, yeah, there's yeah. so much information so for any of our listeners who've not yet picked up the book uh, this is your chance yes. and do uh, you know tell us about the other history books that you have found in this genre that are interesting because i know i am always looking out for recommendations and my amazon will hopefully recommend me something good but i want to move us to the next section which is our last one i have me and michelle have so many questions for you but we don't want to keep you here longer <laughs> we, we can go on yeah. and on and on uh, yeah. but you know things have to end so let's move on yeah. to the rapid fire round and this is the most fun uh, round yeah <laughs> yeah where do you write I write in my in my room in my workroom. The next one, Harappans or Aryans? Harappans. <laughs> okay. One thing you would like to tell someone who thinks Indians have a pure heritage. <laughs> We are all mixed, and that's what makes us Indians. Wow! I would frame that. <laughs> okay. Next one, hunter gatherers or farmers? Farmers. One type of person from your book that you would like to meet in real life. Ashoka. Oh, why? <laughs> I'm just I'm curious. You will see it in my next book. I think there's nobody oh. who has has uh, <laughs> apart from the kind the, the kind of impact that he has had on the political uh, development of the country and the kind of impact he had being the what shall I say the temp- becoming the template for a lot of things that would happen later is is that huge and it's a fascinating character too. Right. Yeah, yeah, so many movies. Um, yeah, yeah, I took you back to the Bollywood movie. Yeah. <laughs> <Of Ashoka. laughs> okay, so yeah. the most interesting detail you found out about Harappan culture. I found it fascinating that there are no images of uh, human on human fighting in the entire Harappan uh, uh, you know cultural artifacts. I don't think there is any other civilization on the face of the earth, an urban civilization. which did not glorify human on human violence at some level but uh, you cannot see that in the harappan civilization and i am completely intrigued by that i do not believe that uh, the harappan civilization did not have violence i am sure they were as violent as any other human population on earth uh, but the fact that they did not valorize it says something uh, something important about them i think and it goes along with the fact that they had no large temples or at least visibly large temples uh, or when you say large or opulent temples or palaces i'm sure they may have had uh, modest temples or modest palaces which we can't distinguish that's possible so i think this was a civilization that had quite different impulses from other urban civilizations of the time uh, so tony that uh, you know brings us to the end of uh, the rapid fire round but before we end this episode i had this question for you because i feel you know like i said liberal people would accept uh, you know this book so how do you think your book can actually penetrate an audience who doesn't read a lot or doesn't even read english or also you know who's narrow minded or quite religious because i i noticed in your uh, faq section you answered a very um, uh, burning question that you know was eve the first woman on earth and you said no um so i find that quite uh, scandalous and i find it quite interesting but i want to know like how can your book penetrate an audience who doesn't um read for example or maybe not read but maybe who doesn't have the same opinion i mean there are two things right one i think uh, at a very 
practical level, mundane level, the book is being translated. It's it's already been translated into five languages, and one more will be out soon, and probably another one after that. So there will be it will be the book is being translated into seven languages. Wow! Hopefully, awesome. we will have a children's version at some point. Those are things that can be done. What about people who may sort of have sort of a very narrow-minded political framework? Whenever you do the kind of work that I do, the underlying bet that you're taking is that you know uh, facts will win over over lies, over misstatements. So that's the basic let, uh, basic bet that you're making, and there's nothing more that you can do other than to make sure that uh, that the book, that every statement that you make, backed by research, backed by science, and uh, this is what one has tried to do in the book in early Indians, and that's what one will continue to continue to do. I think the the interesting fact is that there is a large uh, demand for. For, for, for history that is written the way that I have written uh, in, in the sense that there are, all, there are no statements that are loose. All statements are backed by facts. And I've been fascinated by the response from the readers uh, and the every day that you are on social media, the kind of response that you get from the readers is fabulous. I, highly, you know, it's highly rewarding. And I think there is a, that kind of response says that there is a large uh, readership for, uh, for history that is based on facts. Absolutely. And, you know, one cannot uh, dispute fact. You can't go wrong with fact. So thank you so much, Tony, for this very, very insightful, informative episode uh, and for your book. And I'm I'm very, very excited hearing about your next book. Uh, I'm definitely going to pick it up as soon as it's out. Thanks so much for coming here today. Yeah, there was a, so much to unpack in that. And I think one of the most insightful interviews for me uh, I could just imagine myself, you know, back in one of those caves, uh, looking at somebody who's doing a cave painting. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, I love non-fiction, as you guys know, and that's why for all the writers out there who want to work on their non-fiction book, I have a few mentorship slots left this year, and I'm really looking to work with some of the best non-fiction ideas out there. So if you have an amazing idea, please reach out to me and let's see what we can come up together. Yeah, I can't wait to see the amazing non-fiction ideas out there, Tara. Um, And for all our listeners, we'll be back next week with another episode with another fantastic guest. And keep guessing who that guest is. We're not going to tell you. But please don't forget to follow us for creative content. We are at Bound India on all social media platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, thank you and see you next time.